Brother Young come up tonight. I wanted to clear one thing that he said this morning. He said, I didn't know the difference between being expelled and graduating. I looked this afternoon. He signed my diploma. So when you start getting older, sometimes you forget some things. So that might be why he forgot that I did actually graduate. Or I found his signature in my Bible and just copied it onto that paper. I don't know which one. We'll leave that one alone there. But I'm just teasing. I shouldn't have said that because he might tease me again. And so, but we are glad that he's here, that Brother Young's here with us. He travels basically almost every week. And he's in a different church and different place. And he's been doing that for years. And he's a blessing wherever he goes. He's always a blessing when he's here. And so, Brother Young, why don't you come this evening and uh, take over for us tonight. Here. Open your Bible, if you would, please, to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 17. First, uh, 1 Samuel, chapter 17. We're going to just very briefly look at a very, very familiar story in the Bible. Uh, maybe the most familiar story in the entire Bible. I'm not sure about that, but it might be. But we're just going to very briefly look at it uh, tonight. This morning, we used our Bible quite a bit. We went, we went all the way from Genesis to the book of Acts and back and everywhere in between. And, but tonight, we're, not gonna, uh, uh, we're just going to look at this one portion of the Bible tonight here in, uh, in 1 Samuel. Uh, we're going to begin in uh, chapter 17. Let me give you just a tiny bit of background that none of you need, but I just feel obligated to do it. Uh, there's a young man by the name of David, and he has seven older brothers, and David's job is to take care of the sheep, and he's out in the field taking care of the sheep. His father calls him in. He says, son, I need you to take this food, go down to where the battle's being fought, and uh, check on your brothers and see how they're doing. So we pick up the story right there. We're in chapter 17. We're going to begin with verse 17. And Jesse said unto David his son, I'm sorry, we're going to begin verse 20. Uh, verse 20, and David rose up early in the morning, and notice that phrase, rose up early in the morning, and left the sheep with the keeper, and took and went as Jesse had commanded him. Notice that phrase, as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the trench as the host was going forth to the fight and, and shouted for, for the battle. Now if you look down at verse 23, and as he, David, talked with them, the other soldiers, including his brothers. Behold, there came up the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, out of the armies of the Philistines, that's the enemies of the uh, army of Israel, and spake according to the same words, and David heard them. Notice that phrase, David heard them. David knew that there was somebody challenging the Israeli army, that there was an enemy that needed to be fought. Now if you'll go down to verse 28. And Eliab, his eldest brother, David's older brother, uh, heard when he, David, spake unto the men, and Eliab's uh, anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why camest thou down hither? And with whom hast thou left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know thy pride and the naughtiness of thine heart, for thou art come down that thou mightest see the battle. And then that famous statement, we're not going to preach on this tonight, but that famous statement. And David said, what have I now done? Is there not a cause? 
Now, if you look down at verse 33. And Saul said to David, Thou art not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. Notice this phrase. For thou art but a youth, and he a man of war from his youth. Now, if you'll skip down to verse 42. And when the Philistine looked about, the Philistine referring there to Goliath, the giant, and when the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him, or means he looked down on him as if he wasn't worth much. He disdained him, for he was but a youth. Notice that phrase, he was but a youth, and ruddy and of a fair countenance. Now if you look at uh, verse 45, And David said to the Philistine, Thou comest to me with a sword, and with a spear, and with a shield. But I come to thee in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom thou hast defiled. So if you noticed as I pointed out the different phrases as we went through this, that David rose up early to go do what he was supposed to do. And he did what he was commanded to do. And he heard that there was an enemy that needed to be fought, and he volunteered to do it. Then he was told twice, you're not acceptable, uh, you're not worthy of this, you're not capable because you're just a youth, you're just a, you're, just a young, you're just a young man, a boy. And David uh, said to the giant, I know... <laughs> I can't fight you on my own. I've been told twice, I've been reminded, I already knew it, but I've been reminded that I am but a youth. And so I'm not coming to you to fight you with a sword or a spear or a shield. I'm coming to you in the, in the name of the Lord. If you'll bear with me tonight, I'm going to speak basically to the young people tonight. So if those of you that are not the young people anymore, uh, as I've been reminded several times since I've been here, <laughs> in, in which category I belong. <laughs> uh, if you'll be patient with me tonight, uh, I, I believe you'll understand why I'm doing this. I'm speaking basically to the young people, and I'm speaking basically to the, uh, the, young, the young men, the, 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 the young men in the room tonight. Speaking to everyone, you understand, but, but I'm a directing some of, most, of my, uh, uh, most of my message tonight to the young men. So let's pray and ask God to help us. Father, I pray tonight that you'll take complete control. Lord, please take control of my mind. Please uh, help me to know exactly what to say and... Uh, Say it with the right spirit, and I pray that you'll help every one of us tonight to hear what the Spirit has for each one of us. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, he, he, he worried this morning about whether or not I was going to trip over those plants, and so thank you for moving those. On Friday, December the 5th, 1941, my father and the 13 adult men who worked for him spent the day cutting pulpwood, small pine trees in the uh, forest of northern Louisiana. Late that afternoon, 
they took the three trucks that my father owned filled with pulpwood logs pulpwood that's the wood they make paper out of and they went to the train yard and they unloaded the yard the uh, the uh, trucks by hand these small logs and put them on the train cars and the yard master paid my father cash for the logs that he had brought in that week so my father turned around with that cash as his custom was to do every Friday afternoon and he made payroll from that cash to the 13 adult men who worked for him two days later December the 7th 1941 Japan attacked America at Pearl Harbor and America was drawn into what became known as World War II. By October of 1943, almost two years later, my dad by that time was driving a cement truck and they were, he was hauling cement to Barksdale Air Force Base in Shreveport, Louisiana because they were expanding the runways for the B-24 and B-25 bombers that they had designed for and were using during World War II. By that time, the war was still not going real well for America and her allies. So America was still expanding the draft to able to enlist every able-bodied man that the ever able-bodied man that they could. So on October the 28th, 1943, my father was inducted into the U.S. Army. Seventeen weeks later, on February the 24th, 1944, my father completed boot camp and volunteered for the paratroopers. The first morning at jump school, Fort Benning, Georgia, they ran 10 miles in their, camp, in their combat boots before breakfast. The men that were not able to complete the run fainted and fell out in the dirt and they left them laying there. They split and went around them and just kept right on running. When those men staggered back into camp that night, they were told to pack their bags because they had washed out of, of, of jump school. Meanwhile, when the men who finished the 10-mile run that morning got back, they ate breakfast, one bowl of dry cornflakes and a half a cup of coffee. And they spent the next four hours doing calisthenics. They did that same thing, same routine, every morning the six weeks they were in jump school. Every afternoon they learned how and practiced jumping. My father made 29 recorded jumps. He found out there were so many men being rushed through jump school because it was right the height of the war that the sergeants couldn't keep up with everybody's name. So he would get in line in the morning and answer roll call to his name and jump. And then he would get in, I mean, in the early afternoon and jump. And then he would get back in line a second time and answer roll call to somebody else's name. And the other guy would pay him $15 to do his jump. <laughs> and he made 11 of those jumps, so 40 jumps altogether. The last jump he was scheduled to make here in the States before his unit was to ship out and go to what became known as the D-Day Normandy invasion. My father was in line inside the airplane. There were 16 men in what they called a stick. 
16 men uh, inside the plane. And when they, uh, the light went on, they stood up, they hooked up their ripcord to the back of their parachute to a cable in the top of the plane. And they went to the door and each man jumped and there was a second, one and a half seconds between each man as they went out the door so each man's parachute had room to open. When my dad was approaching the door, the man in front of him froze. He got scared. He froze in the door. The men behind my dad couldn't tell that the man in front of my dad had froze in the door, so they kept moving forward. When they did, it shoved my dad into the back of that man that was in the door, and the two of them went out the door together. Neither parachute opened fully as it should have, both partially opened. When they hit the ground, my, the other man broke his back in four places, and my dad broke his foot. He spent the next six weeks in traction and then the next six months recuperating. On January the 28th, 1945, about 4.30 in the morning, my father hit the front lines of the Battle of the Bulge. That morning, when he got out of the truck, one of the older men that had already been in combat, older, a few months older than my dad, had been in combat for a few weeks, but it made him experienced, but my dad wasn't yet. He looked at my dad and he said, if you're going to carry that weapon, you better let me show you what the Germans try to do to the man who carries that weapon. They had given my dad the Browning automatic. He was the marksman for his squad because he had scored 496 out of a possible 500 points on the rifle range. The older man said to my dad, let me show you. And they walked around the corner of a little farmhouse in the edge of the Ardenne Forest in Belgium. There was about two foot of snow on the ground. It was seven degrees below zero. And lying over here was a man's torso and arms and, and head and half of a Browning automatic. And lying over here was his legs in the other half of the Browning automatic. The Germans had hit him point blank with a 88 millimeter howitzer. A little after daylight that morning, they launched their first attack and by noon, they had captured the village of Holzheim. And one of my dad's sergeants, Steve Funk, had, uh, had, uh, been had, had won and later awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor for rescuing, for, for freeing 96 American soldiers and killing 17 German uh, soldiers that were, guard, that, were, that were guarding them. Later that afternoon, my dad's first day in combat, they came to a little bridge just outside the, the village of St. Vith, Belgium. And uh, they attacked that bridge. They took it away from the Germans. The Germans counterattacked, took it away from the Americans. The Americans attacked a second time, took it away from the Germans again. And a sergeant said to my father and two other men, the three of you need to go out on that bridge and push all the German bodies off because there were so many there they couldn't drive the trucks across. And when they did, those bodies floated down the river and got caught up on a log jam and dammed up the river. And in a few moments, it began to overflow its banks. On January the 29th, 1945, my dad's second day in combat. He was making his way through the Ardeen Forest when he found a man in his unit lying wounded in the snow. 
He picked him up, put him on his back, and began to make his way back towards the medic. And when he did, he heard the crack of a German sniper's rifle. And at the same moment, heard a dull thud, and the body on his back went limp. Knowing that the man was now dead, he rolled him off his shoulders and began to zigzag between the trees, hoping that the German would not take a second shot and take a chance on revealing his location. On January the 30th, 1945, my dad's third day in combat, they came to the little village of Lanzarath, Belgium. It was the last village they would liberate in Belgium before they crossed the border and went into Germany. I've been to that village 11 times. Nine of the times my father was with me. We've taken groups over there to tour the World War two battlefields and so forth that my dad fought in. There's 12 houses. The village still looks exactly the way it did back then. There's 12 houses. There's a restaurant. There's a school and there's a church. When my dad's unit got there on January the 30th, 1945, about 4.30 in the afternoon, the sun was just going down. They found some foxholes that the Americans had dug before the Battle of the Bulge started that pushed them back and they got in those same foxholes and the Germans noticed them getting in the foxholes and so they were in the village of Lanzareth so they attacked across the pasture which was about 200 yards wide that divided the forest where the foxholes were from the village my dad began to fire his Browning automatic and a few moments later a sergeant yelled young bring that machine gun over here to this foxhole so my dad and the man carrying his ammunition crawled out of their foxhole, crawled over to the other foxhole. He began to fire from that vantage point. A few minutes later, another sergeant yelled, Young, bring that machine gun over here. He crawled again out of his foxhole. The man and that happened about three or four times in the next hour and 15 minutes that the battle lasted. Somehow in the midst of all of that, he got separated from the man that was carrying his ammunition. He found out later the reason they got separated was because that man got wounded. But when he found himself in a foxhole with no ammunition in his Browning automatic, the other man in the foxhole next to him said, here, fire this weapon for a while. It was a collapsible stock carbine rifle that was specially designed just for the paratroopers in World War II. The carbine rifle was that small little rifle that, that was so famous in World War II that so many men carried. But the paratroopers didn't have a wood stock on theirs. They had a stiff wire stock that folded against the side of the gun so they could wear it in a scalpel on their side like a big long pistol so that when they jumped into combat, they had an extra weapon. Well, my dad didn't have one of those extra weapons because he didn't jump in. He came in as a replacement. So the man handed him that weapon and said, here, fire this for a while. And so he did until the battle ended. He tried to give it back to the man, and the man said, no, you better keep that. You might need it again someday. So my dad took his trenching tool, his little collapse, his little folding uh, uh, shovel, I guess you'd call it, that was in a swivel holster and threw the trenching tool away and put that carbine down in that, that holster on his side. It was dark by now, but there was a full moon, and the ground was covered with snow. And you know how 
on a, well, I don't know if you would know or not because you don't see much snow, <laughs> but, but uh, uh, if, if you know uh, 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 at night when there's snow covers the ground, if there's a least bit of a moon out, and that night there was a full moon, you can see pretty well, almost like, like in daylight. That, and, and the sergeant noticed a big blood stain running down my dad's leg. And he said, Young, you better drop your pants and let's see how bad you've been hit. And my dad said, I, I didn't get hit. I haven't been hit. But the sergeant knew that sometimes when you're in combat and your adrenaline's flowing, you, at first you don't even feel it when you get hit. So he said, Young, we better check and see how bad you've been hit. And you know what we call today cargo pants? You know, the ones with the big pockets on the outside. Those were designed, created for the paratroopers in World War II so they could take in extra ammunition and food and so forth when they went into combat. And my dad found out that a bullet had gone through a can of pork and beans in his, in his pocket. <laughs> I always say my dad shed his pork and bean juice for our freedom. <laughs> but when they left the foxholes, that's when they saw that, and then they started to make their way across the pasture into the village. It was dark by now. They found out later that there were 63 dead Germans in that pasture from the battle they had just fought. As they made their way into the village, and the same house is still there today, when they got to the second house on the left, they heard a noise in the house. And Sergeant Booth said to my father, Young, go see what that noise was. My father pushed the door open with his foot, and when he did, the momentum brought him through the door, and as he passed through the door, he noticed on the wall on the other side a full-length mirror, and the house across the street was on fire, so from the light of that fire, there was a reflection in that mirror, and standing behind the door was somebody with what turned out to be two American-made Colt 45 semi-automatics. They were waiting to shoot him in the back as he came through the door, knowing that a moving target is harder to hit than a steel target he quickly rolled on the floor and as he rolled he swung his browning automatic and pulled the trigger and a german lady that was in a the german underground that would have shot him if he hadn't shot her first fell dead on the floor next to her on february the 7th 1945, my dad's unit crossed the secret line, Hitler's final line of defense on the German border. On February the 18th, 1945, they came to the little village of Brandenburg, and my dad stepped around the corner of a building in that little village. I've been there. I've seen the spot. And he heard three shots, and as he heard the three shots, he looked up and saw a German lieutenant about a half a block away firing a 32 caliber Walther, a semi-automatic pistol at him. Knowing he didn't have time to bring his Browning automatic up and cock it and fire, he grabbed the pistol grip of that carbine that was still in that swivel holster, and while it was still in the holster, he swiveled it up. By then, he had filed down the trigger mechanism that made it automatic instead of semi-automatic and when he pulled the trigger as he was swiveling it up it emptied the eight round clip the first three bullets he said he saw him ricochet off the cobblestone 
and the last three hit that German in the chest. I have that 32 Walther semi-automatic pistol in my, in my gun safe at my house that my dad brought home from World War II. On February the, 8th, uh, the tw February 20th, 1945, my dad's unit came to the next little village of Bergstein. It was the last village on the west bank of the Rohr River. The Rohr River was the last river they had to cross before they came to the Rhine River, the big famous uh, river there in Germany. When they came to Bergstein, there was a concrete bunker on the bank of the, uh, on the cliff overlooking the Ruhr River. There were 36 German soldiers living inside the concrete bunker, four foot thick walls, concrete walls, living in there and fighting from in there. My dad's unit had been trained on how to capture those bunkers, surround them, fight their way in, get the Germans out. But in this particular one, it was a little harder than usual. They lost four men killed and three wounded. Three men killed and four wounded, taking that bunker. When they finally got inside, all 36 Germans were dead. The man that had been shooting the 50 caliber machine gun through the porthole in the side of the bunker was still gripping the handles of the machine gun, slumped over the machine gun, dead. And when they checked his papers, that man was a 12-year-old boy from the German youth movement that Hitler was pushing into combat at the end of the war. On February the 23rd, 1945, Company I, 3rd Battalion, 508th Regiment, 82nd Airborne Division, my dad's company, was called upon to lead the crossing of the Ruhr River. The night before, the American engineers had put floating pontoon bridge, footbridges across the river. As my dad was making his way across that little narrow bridge, about as wide as this uh, 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 aisle here, not even quite that wide, he got about three-fourths of the way across the river and the Germans had their 88-millimeter howitzers on the cliff on the other side, and they were shelling the river, and one of them hit the bridge in front of my dad and blew it in half, and the, river, the bridge began to sway back and forth in the current like that. And he couldn't turn around and go back. There were too many men coming behind him. And so my dad and several other men went off the end of that bridge with their combat gear and com boots and helmet and so forth and had to swim the last fourth of the way across this. wasn't a real wide river, but they had to swim a little distance to the other side. They set up a beachhead, and they held their ground until the 99th Infantry crossed behind them and, and, and uh, took over their position. The morning before, that morning... 119 men in Company I answered roll call. That night, on the other side of the river, 37 men answered roll call. My dad was one of the 37 men. On February the 28th, 1945, my dad's unit was pulled out of combat, and they were taken to Charts, France, near, uh, near Paris, and they were specially trained on how to jump inside an American prisoner of war camp and hand out weapons to the prisoners and fight their way back out. Some of you may have heard the famous story that happened on March the 27th, 
1945, when Patton moved his tanks overnight without orders, 40 miles behind enemy lines to rescue American soldiers in a prisoner of war camp because his son-in-law, John Waters, was in that camp. When the tanks got there that morning and began uh, uh, shelling the, 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 the camp and, and, and fighting their way in to liberate the soldiers, my dad was standing in the door of a C-47. That's the plane that the paratroopers jumped out of in World War II. He was standing in the door of a C-47. He was designated as the first man out for that particular plane. Between his feet, he had a burlap bag with 100 carbine rifles in it. It was his job to push that bag out on a parachute, jump out behind it, hit the ground, find the bag, hand the weapons out to the other prisoners, to, to American prisoners, while the other paratroopers tried to take care of the guards. Just before the green light came on for them to jump, they got a radio call from one of the tanks that said, you guys can go home, we're all done. I asked my dad one time, I said, were you a little disappointed after all that training that you didn't get to jump? He said, not on your life. <laughs> he said, if I could have found Pat in that morning, I'd have kissed him. <laughs> on May the 7th, 1945, the war in Europe ended. On July the 20th, 1945, my father celebrated his 20th birthday. America tonight is under attack. And I don't mean by Russia. We may or may not come under attack by them someday. I don't know. I'm not a prophet. But America has been and is under attack tonight. As much as we were under attack on December the 7th, 1941, we are under attack tonight. They have attacked, among many other things, this book right here. They've taken it out of our schools. They tried to tell us it wasn't true. They've tried to change it by coming out with other versions of it that, 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 that are not really the Bible. They've attacked our homes. You, you, you know, you, you parents, you know, you, you, you almost cringe in fear when every time you discipline one of your children, especially in public. I mean, you're almost a criminal if you do what the Bible tells you to do with your children here in America. They've attacked our schools. The, the, the mess they're teaching our they're teaching our children in school, grade school children, how to safely fornicate. As if there's a safe way to sin. There's no safe way to be a drunkard. There's no safe way to be a, a dope addict. And there's no safe way to be a whoremonger. And I'm speaking in terms that the adults would understand tonight, not the children to some extent. They've attacked our marriages. <laughs> yeah, they've tried to change, or distort, change the meaning of the word marriage. You can't change it. I mean, marriage is marriage. It's defined right here in this book. 
It's one man married to one woman, and there's no other such thing. <laughs> that's, that's all marriage is. Now, you can have something else that's perverted, but you can't honestly call it marriage. But we're under attack tonight here in this country. And I'm speaking to the young men in the room tonight, and I'm speaking to every person in this room who has any influence over any of the young men in this room tonight. We're going to have to have some young men that will stand up and fight. I mean fight like my father fought in World War II. I don't have time to go into all the stories, and my father did not like to talk about it. I lived in the same home with him for 18 years. I was uh, 63 years of age when he died. I never one time in my entire life heard my father say the phrase back when I was in the war or during World War II. Every single thing I know about my dad being in World War II, I had to ask him and drag it out of him. And almost every time he'd either break down and cry or he'd walk out of the room or he'd change the subject. He did not like talking about it. But my dad had to kill some men with his bare hands. And I'm not talking about young men that need to get a gun and go out in the street and start shooting people. But I mean, a young, I, we need some young men. Okay, the Bible said David served his own generation by the will of God. We need some young men that will serve their generation. You know, by the time, I'm looking at some of you young men here in the room tonight. By the time your children are the age that you are, I won't be here anymore. Or if I am, I won't know I am. <laughs> I'm almost there now, <laughs> according to some authorities. <laughs> but who's going to serve you? Okay, I, I haven't been perfect. I haven't done all I should have done. I've, I've fallen woefully short. But I've served my generation for over 50 years now. I've been in the ministry 51 years. He's serving his generation. And there's other folks here in the room tonight that are serving your generation by helping to send out the mailers, by, by uh, uh, passing out tracts, by bringing visitors, by teaching Sunday school. By, uh, okay, you're ser okay, but I'm looking at the young people tonight, and I'm telling you, if anybody's going to serve your generation, it's going to have to be you. David said, is there not a cause? If there has ever been a cause in America, it's tonight. I'd like to have every head bowed and every eye closed.